I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. My guest is Rick Halterman. 
He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. Good morning. Well, good morning to you. Do you want to get into this topic? The soul of democracy? Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling about it? Well, very interesting. Of course, I love talking to you because, you know, it's a real conversation that we can have. But I've been wondering about this, not so much from a political point of view, but I was wondering what exactly was happening to our democracy and where was it going? Because what I was starting to feel, and this was sort of the overview, was that what used to be, at least I think conceptually, this idea of the checks and balances between the three branches of government, that's really disappeared, at least from my perspective. More specifically, that, and this has been going on for a while, that the executive branch, because of, say, lack of action, for instance, from the Congress, has been doing more and more executive orders in order to try and get things done. And there's been this idea that I hadn't really encountered before until I saw it in the New York Times in the last month or so, which was the idea of judicial superiority, and that people were getting concerned, some scholars were getting concerned about the idea that the Supreme Court was really ending up with far too much power. And so, you know, and as you know, like a great example of that would have been the election between Al Gore and George Bush, and that one person on the Supreme Court could actually determine who the president of the United States was going to be. So that very same article also talked about, which I wasn't aware of before, that Congress has the power to impeach judges. And they've tried it a few times in the past, and it has not succeeded, but I wasn't even aware of that. So it seems to me there's been this imbalance where Congress, in its sort of paralysis with itself between the parties not making decisions, that the Supreme Court has ended up with an inordinate amount of power. And, of course, people that get lifetime appointments, and and I think that's something that probably should be reviewed. And then the executive branch has been going sort of nuts as far as just doing executive orders because they can't get any cooperation out of Congress. So it's all kind of askew. And then we have, you know, a current president who's, in essence, authoritarian and does not even understand or believe in the concept of checks and balances in order to keep things in line. So it's very strange to me to see we've gotten to this particular place. And so the the question I was going to pose to you is, if you believe those things that I just mentioned, how do we move forward from this place? Well, let me reflect on on something you just brought up, which I think is really a fascinating insight. The way I see what you are talking about as this new excessive power of the Supreme Court may not be so much the power of the Supreme Court as much as it's the way the Supreme Court is being used in a political way, how the executive branch is... I think what they're doing is they're opportunistically bringing particular cases to the court now that they have a conservative majority in order to get their own legislative agenda met in an instance where, as you mentioned, Congress has been pretty much paralyzed and inactive, inept, or whatever, however you want to describe it. I just heard recently that this Senate has passed only 70 bills, which is down from previous administrations, which were like around seven or 800 
bills. Yeah. So yeah. they've been like ultra inactive and the activity that they're engaged in is highly, highly political. It's mostly, you know, the power of the megaphone and all in political ways. And yeah. I think what they're doing with the Supreme Court is they are somehow bringing to the courts the cases that they want adjudicated in their political favor. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know how much power the Supreme Court really has in this way, because I've never seen the Supreme Court used in this way before. And that, I think, speaks to the thing that I'm talking about, which is this idea that for instance, you know, the current president really wanting both the judiciary as well as Congress basically to be in his pocket. Exactly. So, so we don't end up with the checks and balances as was originally intended. In other words, we've, we've had a manipulation of the system. Exactly. And I understand where it's coming from. The Republican Party is absolutely desperate because they know that if they played the political game honestly they would lose hands down. And they're just desperately trying to stack the political system as much as they possibly can in their favor because they know they're going out. And they yeah. want this lasting legacy of conservative control in the courts where they can get corporations and churches and whatever organizations they want to bring suit to the Supreme Court to adjudicate these major pet issues of theirs in their favor so that even with a democratic or liberal or progressive executive branch and Congress, they will still be able to legislate along their conservative or ultra-conservative lines. Yeah, and for me, I just tend to use a different word, which is that it's really about power. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It is power. Because I think, as you pointed out, that, and you know, the Democrats have their own problems too, but the Republican Party is, for the most part, just simply representing an old paradigm that is becoming extinct very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, instead of using terms like conservative, I think I should have used the term like social agenda, social and economic agenda. Yeah, that's fair, because... You know, when I think of the older conservatives, certainly when both you and I were growing up, that there was, you know, for instance, fiscal responsibility, there were certain kinds of restraints, things like that. And unfortunately, a lot of that has vanished from the Republican Party. More radical now. And also, here's a term, integrity. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's gone. So to get back to the title of our talk... I was really trying to think, and I've been pondering this for the last few weeks as I was traveling around and wondering, so where does the soul fit within all of this? And I was thinking of, about this idea, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, Tonio, that the soul is really interested in the full expression of each of us as individuals, and how can love then be brought forth in the world through that individuality. So with that thought in mind, what form of government would be best available to bring that idea forward? And democracy, I think, is a lovely idea, and, and there's, of course, always this part of me that wonders as things are progressing at the moment, what would our founders 
think in terms of what was happening today with the system to where it happens to be at the moment. Well, of course, I think they would be horrified, although back in their day, they were going through very similar squabbles, if you know your history. Right. So my thought is it's not so much the political system itself, but the people and the integrity and the intentions of the people in those positions of political power and authority. Yeah. So this is sort of a, I don't know if it's a parallel or a tangent, Tonio, but when we were out traveling, I noticed, for instance, one of the first places we went to was the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and my partner and I both were looking around, and we were astonished at how many people were not wearing masks. I would say it was minimum 50%. And were they and this in would be like quarter? on a crowded hiking trail. And that's even a whole other topic, how the national parks that we visited have really become urbanized, that so many people are escaping the cities that the national parks right now are overrun, mm. completely overrun. Mm. You know, and, and people all over the place, you know, and not on the extreme hiking trails, but, you know, all the viewpoints, whatever, and there are just people walking all around. And it really got me to thinking about this idea, because I know this is very strongly and somehow out there in the world, this idea of the freedom of not to wear a mask even during a pandemic. And I was thinking about it this morning and thinking about it reminds me of say, a teenager, that I want my freedom, but I don't necessarily understand or want to take any responsibility that goes with that freedom. Mm -hmm. And so this plays into the very thing you were just talking about in terms of what's happening with our government. I feel like there's a point where, I don't know if it's a regression, progression, whatever it may be, but there is this almost adolescent kind of view of like how to manipulate politics, how we want our freedom, but we really don't want the responsibility, for instance, of how do we care for everyone in a communal way? Because that's the whole idea of government is how do we come up with some form of governance that's going to work communally for everybody involved? Well, I would just remove the word almost. Mm -hmm. Because in my opinion, humanity is at the adolescent stage. And I think recently, in the last few decades anyway, they've been trying to behave with a little more maturity, but all of that completely went out the window a few years ago. Yeah. And, and as you're saying, so yeah, nobody wants to take responsibility, and many people just want to have a basic tantrum about the limitations being put on them and just pout and rebel. Yeah. So let's suppose for a second, say you're in charge in some fashion. How would you see a way forward if there is a way forward? You know, quite honestly, if we're going to act with integrity, you know, along the principles of quote-unquote democracy or Republican government, little r Republican government, yeah. I don't think we can really do a whole lot because what we have to work with are people at the level of maturity that they're at, and I think, well, I think maybe there is something that could be done. We could do a lot better at regulating the media and the way information is allowed to flow unchecked. I think that's a critical thing. I'm not exactly sure how to do it. From what I've been hearing, they deal with that very differently in Europe than they do here, that here they pretty much give carte blanche to anybody 
you know, along the lines of freedom of speech, that anybody can say anything and get away with it. Whereas, yeah, whether it's true or not. Exactly. Whereas over in Europe, that's not the case, or n not nearly as much as it is here. And as a result of that, things have gotten pretty crazy here. That, and, you know, I love that you use that word critical, because I remember in your interview, and I can't remember her name, but there was your former co-host, who's now a teacher down in Florida. Carla. Carla. And she was really emphasizing quite beautifully in that interview with you the idea of emphasizing critical thinking, mm -hmm. which seems to have gotten lost for the most part in our educational system. Yeah, that's the other part. Education needs to be changed radically because right now, you know, schools are focusing on the symptoms of education, as in test scores and testable results, whereas they're completely ignoring, I mean, completely ignoring the underlying foundations of education, which I totally agree with you and Carla. It has to be real, deep, critical thinking ability. And would you say that the education system, I mean, and this probably sounds obvious, that it's really quite symptomatic of this sort of adolescence thing, because it seems to me our educational system is really geared basically to get people to become good citizens in a capitalist culture. Absolutely. In fact, last week I interviewed a former teacher and education scholar, and we talked about those things. And I am very disturbed about the state of the education system in this country and the direction it's been going in and that the people in authority you know, are completely blind to that, or at least they're behaving that way. And it seems to me that they want to keep people dumbed down and not thinking critically. That may be especially true with an administration like we have right now who won't benefit from people thinking critically about things. And I also wonder, too, Tonio, that for those, for instance, on school boards, those people that are in charge of curriculum, that they themselves haven't necessarily done the personal work to really get to, I think, isn't the word education comes from educare, which means to draw forth, to draw forth, you know, what is inherently inside each and every individual within that system, instead of basically this mass production of, oh, you know, we need more, you know, like whether it's going to be accountants, doctors, engineers, whatever, that we want to draw forth the individuality. This gets back to that soul thought, the individuality within each person so that they can live the rich life that they deserve. Yeah, the authentic aspect, the authentic individuality of each person and let them unfold and flower in their own unique ways. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not what our education system is about at all. It's all about becoming passive consumers. Passive well, consumers and, of know, there's, everything. There's a quote from the book that I have in there that I think it's in a chapter on culture from Doris Lessing, and she talks about how this is really you know, just a process of indoctrination, our mm. educational system, and, and mm -hmm. she's apologizing to the reader and saying, sorry, this is the best we've come up with, but be aware this is what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best we've come up with. I think we've just settled down to this low common denominator. We've actually come up with some great things, but just not on a larger scale. And on the larger scale, the political will seems to be towards, you know, 
an industrial model of education, one that fulfills the needs of an industrialized society that needs workers. Workers who, right. who, as George Carlin said, are just smart enough to know how to do their jobs, but also dumb enough to accept anything that they're told. And you're bringing up a very interesting point to me that if things, and, I, and you can see this is how political parties will want to manipulate voters, if things can be reduced to a survival level, like the whole fear that's presented around, say, the law and order issue, that kind of thing. If it can be reduced to a survival level, there's far greater chance of control. Mm -hmm. Same in education, because yeah. what we were talking about last week was that many parents, on a pretty superficial level, they want the best for their children. So that what they're doing is they're sending them to schools that are getting the highest test score results, not schools that are teaching kids critical thinking skills and the ability to be a better human being, but schools that generate higher test scores and better college entrance possibilities right. for better earning ability. It's yeah. about money, superficial, material things, nothing about the soul aspect of the human being. No, you're absolutely right, and it speaks to this idea, the false belief that our culture really is very much invested in, which is that idea that the more money you have, the more successful you'll be, and the more successful you'll be, the happier you'll be. But it's also connected with that issue of survival that you were talking about, and it relates to fear, because the less we think we have, the more insecure we tend to believe ourselves to be. Right. Those are the narratives that we tell ourselves in this culture, that more is better and control, you know, having control over one's environment and the conditions of one's life. And it translates into having or desiring things like law and order and an education system that churns out successful workers. <laughs> Well, it guarantees at least your bottom line survival, regardless of all the other stuff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in the larger context, because we, we've been loosely talking about this conversation in many of our own discussion over the last year or so, where, if, if you even have a hope meter, Tonio, where might that be? And if you don't have a hope meter, explain why you don't. I'm optimistic in the long term. I just don't know when our our ship will come in <laughs> as a species or when yeah. our camel will 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 show up while we're dying of thirst in the desert. Right. Or whatever metaphor we want to use. I'm hopeful and optimistic that humanity will evolve eventually if we survive. And if we don't survive, I suspect that the universe will find other creative means for self-expression and fulfillment of this kind of magical dance of self-discovery and self-enjoyment, you know, that kind of magical thing of separating one's wholeness into separate things to, to play with itself and enjoy itself and dance and enjoy the possibilities of creativity, which, of course, once you start that ball rolling, you have to go through what we have all gone through, and we are now at what I believe to be an adolescent stage of evolution in yeah. terms of human maturity. 
And I just think that's a natural thing that we have to go through. All of us have to go through. We have to go through it individually and collectively. And at the collective level, we are an adolescent species in perhaps an even younger adolescent stage as a nation, which is a bit of a shift from, it seemed as though this nation was actually doing better maybe within the last few decades. And it's been going downhill for a while. And maybe that's an illusion that it was going downhill. Maybe it just seemed like we were doing better mm-hmm. and that it's it's hard to tell, you know, because we have the issues of, you know, our conscious awareness and, and our subconscious and unconscious. And as the unconscious and subconscious issues rise to the surface, it changes the way things appear to us. So it's really hard to kind of diagnose where we are? Well, of course, it depends on our own belief systems. But for instance, would you say that, say, Lyndon Johnson's work with, you know, helping move civil rights legislation forward, that was a more positive step in terms of the progression forward that you were referring to? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And would you say in, in larger terms, and, you know, I don't want to reduce this too far, but that these forces at hand that are underlying what, say, what's going on now, but it certainly has happened in the past. There are the forces of fear and there are the forces of love. But as we've talked about before, a lot of the fear that's happened is really based on people and their, in essence, false beliefs. Well, wouldn't you say that all of that stuff is based on false beliefs? that all fear other than the direct fear of like when you're out in on the savanna and you see a lion or yeah instinct that most of the fear that human beings experience in society are not based on anything real they're, right they're just based on narratives that have been generated on the collective level depending upon how we were raised and the belief systems that we grew up with yes and I do agree with that, and you know, there's that basic work that I realized, for instance, our educational system would cover a lot of ground if it taught people right from the get-go that, you know, identity is simply just a belief, and it's something that the ego, of course, thrives on, you know, and this is more shows up in spiritual teachings. So what's that curious place of, so if we really banish the beliefs and the identity, where do we end up? Well, how do you, well, you use the term banish identity, I don't think it's so much about banish ideas of identity. I don't think it's about banishing ideas about identity. I think it's broadening one's perspective of the whole playing field of the range of identities so that we don't get overly fixated on any particular identities in opposition or separate from other identities. And I'm, I'm in agreement with that, Tonio. You know, I'm just basically saying in a first-person fashion that if I get too hung up on this white male thing that I happen to be, that I can get lost in the identity of, well, you know, we're, we're being replaced everywhere, that kind of thing, and, and one can get lost and, and go straight to that fear place, versus if I just accept the fact that, well, I happen to have this body with this color skin, and then just still move forward accordingly, that it doesn't have to limit what I do and don't love out there in the world. But what's happening in the world today, especially in this country, but it's happening in other countries too, is that we have 
a media that is propagating narratives that play to the fears that you were just describing earlier, you know, the narratives of fear and separation and how we're losing, you know, and reinforcing the fixated identification with being whatever we happen to be, whether it's a white male in a world that is gradually becoming more and more diverse and less white male dominated. Yeah. In, yeah, at yeah. least in population. I, I think there's also that other thing, and I know that you've done your own personal work in the past as well, which is that we live in an ego-based, an ego-centered world, which really is obsessed with identity. Right. And if that's even possible, obviously our education system isn't there. You know, all the mystery schools, in essence, or at least the one I went to, was really focused on how does the ego identify and how can we start minimizing those identifications so we don't have to walk around with it basically on our sleeves and can just be part of a shared humanity. Right. How do we get people of different identities to sit down together at the table of brotherhood, as Martin Luther King said, as opposed to going to war against each other? Yeah, and I always keep going back to this. This was part of, you know, my thinking all along, which was that the template, and I think indigenous cultures are much better with this than our current mainstream culture, which is that if we use nature as a template, we're really down to three pretty essential ideas. One is cooperation, the other is adaptation, and the third is knowing what's enough. And that third one in particular, we have so lost that concept as a modern American culture. And those three things are all intertwined. Absolutely. And if one is missing that throws the other ones completely off kilter. Yeah. And as I think you were alluding to, what we have happening in our society today is completely off kilter. Yeah. Would you say that this current pandemic that's taking place on the planet, is there any place for it in terms of getting things to progress further. And this is in terms of these very ideas we're talking about, adaptation, cooperation, and learning, like, for instance, well, maybe we have to take a break from all our excesses in terms of, you know, these large gatherings, things like that, and maybe get back in touch with ourselves individually before we can really go any further. That sounds like a nice idea. (laughs) And and I think a lot of people have been doing that, but there's also a certain segment of the population that are refusing to do that, who do not want to do that at all, and are having a kind of a tantrum about being told that they have to do that. Well, there's that teenager again showing up. Yeah, the young adolescent teenager that's still prone to tantrums. And I think the difference, though, that's happening right now is that the teenage process of rebelling and doing those things is a very important process of individuation in order to discover who they really are. Yes. I'm not sure. It seems to me there's a stuckness taking place in our own culture that really isn't interested in the process of individuation, even though one might... I mean, I actually saw, like, political signs, you know, placards out there as we were driving around. This was particularly in southern Utah of somebody who was running for the House of Representatives. And the whole slogan they had on their poster was, Freedom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that's a wonderfully vague idea (laughs) without any kind of backup whatsoever. As far as freedom to do what exactly? 
Yeah. What you've been just talking about is reminding me once again that, you know, it's our nature to be very impatient about change mm -hmm. and evolution, that we want what we want now. And those of us who want to see a saner, more responsible and egalitarian world, we don't have the patience or can't stomach the evolutionary process that we're going through as a species. And I don't think there's any way to avoid that. I think, you know, crisis in the Chinese language uses the same ideogram as opportunity. Yeah. And I think there have been numerous people who have pointed out how we tend to rise to the occasion or, or excel in a crisis. And when crises come around, they're not comfortable. We don't enjoy them, but it forces us to change. It forces us to grow and adapt and hopefully in positive and creative ways that build wisdom and maturity. And there's that old thing about progress does not happen in a straight line. And when we appear to be going backwards and we happen to be living in one of those moments where we appear to be going backwards, it's very easy to go into despair and, and lose hope and to think that all is for naught. When if we look at the bigger picture in a much broader scale, it seems inevitable that we do, in fact, evolve and grow and mature and get wiser and bigger as we grow. I agree. And I guess I could remind, which you're well aware of, this idea that the whole creation of this particular form of government, the democracy, was really coming from the crisis of all the oppression from King George way back, you know, over 200 years ago. And like, well, we can probably or perhaps come up with a better way of doing this so that we don't end up in the oppressive phase. I think part of our problem that we've gone through right now is that we've been sort of living it up, you know, in terms of oil consumption, in terms of polluting the atmosphere, you know, using resources like there's no end. And now we're in a certain sense paying the price. So it's quite interesting to see that maybe, for instance, these forces that we're seeing currently are the things that were basically being swept under the carpet, and we didn't really want to face them as directly as we need to now. So that, for instance, you know, I think even Joe Biden was talking about that there, I think he mentioned the possibility of a presidential commission that would look into term limits for the Supreme Court that Congress can simply enact it. You know, those sorts of things of, well, maybe a revamping is really necessary because we needed that kind of oppression in order to really sort of sit up and pay attention, say, we now do need to make some changes here because it's clearly not working out. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point because I was just thinking that I don't think we can legislate or moralize our way through this evolutionary process that essentially humanity has to evolve and mature organically through all the messiness. But yeah, I think there are certain regulatory things that can be changed, you know, and tweaked to, let's say, more optimize this very uh, kind of slipshod system we've got. <laughs> Remember, 
there was a number of months ago I sent you, and you helped with this, you know, that new Declaration of Independence. And for instance, one of the things that you felt very strongly about, and I quite agreed with you, you know, the actual dollar amount is something that can be discussed later, but that the idea of financial influence on elections, you know, right now there's unlimited financial influence, that that needs to be completely eliminated. I think you were saying a maximum of $5 per person, you know, could be devoted towards, you know, a political candidate, something. I don't know what the actual figure should be or could be, but you were basically doing a beautiful thing, which was saying, let's pull the plug on the influence of money in politics. Yes. And at the same time, also taking away this erroneously given personhood to corporations. Yes. Which essentially gives them the same legal rights of individual human beings, but armed with massive, massive amounts of money and power and influence because of all that money. And essentially, our current state of democracy is not based on one person, one vote, but one dollar, one vote. Yeah, well, that's where capitalism has taken over democracy. But I know you would be in agreement because that was one of the first things I had listed was, let's just get rid of the electoral college. It's no longer functional. Well, that too. And also, the Senate, the way that works and the way that's set up is also faulty and was originally set up the way it is for political expediency to get all the states to agree to be part of this this fledgling yeah. government. And now... I mean, it'll be very difficult to change that, but the Senate does not represent the people of this nation in terms of the numbers. You know, every state has two senators, regardless right. of the population, and that's yeah. that's just utterly and completely and ridiculously undemocratic. Yeah. So there, there are lots of things, and, you know, I guess there's part of me as a curiosity of, so how do we shift out of this older paradigm to get to the new one that's clearly presenting itself whether we like it or not. Like, for instance, Black Lives Matter stepping forward and basically saying, we're not going to take this anymore. And there's the new paradigm showing up and saying, we're not going to go away until this is fully addressed in some fashion. Well, I don't think that we white people have much to say in this because we have been pretty comfortable with this system, and change does not come from comfort and complacency. Change, right. Meaningful change is coming from those movements and people who live outside of that, who really want that change and who need that change and more strongly or desperately desire that change. So mm-hmm. we are like irrelevant bystanders, and I just wonder, you know, what the fate of white people will be in coming years, because there could be a backlash yet to come. That could really uh, affect in many terms white of violence, people. would you say? Could, it could be. It, it could be actual violence. It could be a political movement. It could, be, it could come in many different forms. I have no idea. I'm just thinking along the lines of the notion of blowback. You know, there are usually, you know, effects to things that have happened. You know, when, when you put a ball in motion, it has an effect on the environment around it, and it has an effect. And we, as white people, as a patriarchal-dominated, white-dominated culture, have instituted a society that has been very unjust, very unequal, 
very destructive, very violent, and there could be consequences, there could be blowback. I guess, I don't think in terms so much, you know, yes, violence, because there's certainly been violence on the streets, and not that I could fully understand it, because I don't have, you know, skin of a different color than what I have, but I understand it as far as people being repressed for so long. But what I wonder, Tonio, and, and let me know your thoughts on this, would this be very different than, for instance, the repression of women and their rights for so, so long? forever, really. And then since the women's movement, women have become a force on their own as well, a political force. And they simply have saying, well, you know, and I think quite rightly, all we want is a level playing field in the same way that anybody with skin of color would say, all we want is a level playing field. And then let's see how that works out. Yeah, it would be nice if there was no violent or reactionary blowback. But who knows? Mm -hmm. All I can do is see it through the lens of history, and in particular through the lens of a white-dominated history. And if there were white people on the other side of this equation, they would be reacting pretty much the way they are reacting right now, against the attempts to control them and dictate how they should behave during this pandemic. Or right. So I'm inclined to think that white people have a kind of psychosis, a, a kind of a, a sickness, and I'm not sure what that's born of. It might be something born of, of a kind of privilege. The last poets used the term, the white man has a God complex. Mm. And that always struck me as being really accurate, that, yeah. that we felt like we were the king of the hill and we had the right to do anything we wanted to anybody else with total impunity because we were the mm -hmm. only ones who mattered, and nobody yeah, else, yeah. Nobody else counted. Thing. Exactly. So I mean, we saw it out on the road, and you know, we were driving a fairly large camper van that's about 20, 22 feet long. But, you know, we could pretty much go to where we wanted to go. But then we would see those vehicles like a full-size pickup truck with like a 60-foot trailer behind, and behind that might even be another vehicle that's being towed that would be, say, a small four-wheel drive, and we would be thinking, oh, my God, how do you even go anywhere? Or, for instance, one night in Joshua Tree, we were camping. The whole campground was really lovely and quiet, everybody doing their thing, and then a generator was going, and, and immediately I thought, wow, that's so fascinating. Here's this old paradigm showing up again. Somebody making all this noise with a generator, clearly not being concerned about the noise pollution. When, you know, there's a newer technology, i.e. solar panels, without any noise whatsoever. And it was just fascinating for me to see this still in action of, well, we're going to keep perpetuating this whole paradigm, regardless of consequences on other people. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, Trump bumper sticker that says, Trump and Pence, f*** your feelings. <laughs> right yeah 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 so it's really quite interesting to see all that but i'm still you know curious about this larger thing like that question i had posed about the pandemic do you see the and here's a wild sort of one of the largest ways i can think of it you know the person who i'd been listening to robert waterman down there in, in santa fe and robert talks about the universe really being based on unconditional love or what he calls the loving, and that the loving is at work all the time, and it's really trying to get everything pushed more in the direction of the loving. So if the loving is orchestrating, 
this wild moment that we're in, can you see a way that this is positive rather than the sort of despair that a lot of people are feeling like, oh, you know, I had a friend who got in touch from Colorado and he was at a complete moment of despair as far as like all the gains that had been lost in just in the last four years, you know, in terms of the environment, in terms of civil rights, things like that, that he was getting lost in the despair and not seeing that, well, maybe all the shadow stuff needs to be brought completely out into full-on daylight in order for us to truly deal with it. Well, that's my sense about that. In order for love to work, everything has to be brought out into the light and accepted as it is, regardless of how ugly it might appear to us from our, you know, current perspectives, current beliefs and values, which are societally generated. They're kind of collectively generated and usually relatively unconsciously adopted and not really thought about that deeply. For many of us, they're thought about to some depth, but not to the depth of this notion of it all existing within the context of a loving universe that accepts everything without exception, including these current, what we might call aberrations in our maturation process. Yeah, and I know this sounds quite metaphorical, but the light of love really can't do anything if some issue, for instance, racism, misogyny, things like that, is still in the shadows that light can really only work when it is brought out of the shadows? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know exactly how that works, but yeah, I mean, we as individuals, we can see how that works in our own personal lives. Yeah. But that also works on a collective level as well. And no matter where we are individually, we still live in a collective society as well. Yeah, so like if we, for instance, if we just use the the idea of climate change, which, for instance, who was it? Was it Shell or Mobile that was keeping all of the scientific information under wraps way back in the 70s, I think it was? Yeah, they were, that was they Mobile already, yeah, and Exxon. They, yeah. they already had the information, mm-hmm. but now it's become so apparent that anybody that's even questioning climate change, I mean, I was astonished to see that Amy Comet Barrett was even saying, well, that's still up for debate. I'm like, really? You ought to go visit California maybe once and you would find out it's not up for debate at all. It's actually really happening on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, but reality is always up for interpretation. Oh, yeah. So no matter what evidence we see before us, we can interpret any data, any evidence in any way we choose to fit our own beliefs. Uh-huh. And you, you know that old line, which was always funny when I first saw it, which was, denial is more than a river in Egypt. No, I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that was from like the 60s. I think it was a bumper sticker. So there's always those elements of denial because people want to hold on to the old paradigm of, oh, no, this isn't really happening. Well, you talk to someone who, you know, like I had a friend just moved back from California and she had been living in the Guerneville area, just north of San Francisco. And in the last two years, she was flooded out of the place she was renting. She had been evacuated twice due to wildfire. Nothing ever got destroyed, but she just put her hands up in the air and said, I'm going back to my house in Taos because there the worst thing I have to deal with is snow. So she was looking at life-threatening situations on an annual basis. 
well, things are definitely changing. And it is so interesting. I mean, do you feel, you know, a certain kind of, like, a wonder as far as, wow, we get to be alive during this time? Oh, yeah. We are getting to be alive in the most interesting time in history. And, Tonya, with all the people that you have the grace to be able to interview, do you find, and this goes back to that question of hope, are you finding hope in the people that you are talking to, and this is not so much about your hope, but as far as their hope, your interviewees, are you finding hope in the course of those conversations? Well, to me, at these people that I'm getting to interview, all of their work is based on hope. I mean, if you're in despair, you can't accomplish anything, really. Right. Especially the kind of stuff that they're doing. I mean, they're doing yeah. beautiful work, and the book that I'm currently reading is like pure magic in, in that realm. It's about dreaming and the imaginal world and working with the power of... It's hard to put into words, for me, of the unseen world. Because, you know, this world that we think is, is so real, this physical yeah. world, you know, all the great spiritual teachers have said this physical world just emerged from the unseen world that this is just a kind of like a pimple <laughs> coming out of or like the tip of the iceberg emerging from this infinite well of possibility. And this is just a tiny manifestation of possibility that we and have been cultivating for several thousand or maybe a hundred thousand years of human existence gradually fabricating this reality that we have come to take for granted. And yet there's a range of possibility that is exponentially larger than we can even imagine. And we can use our imagination to explore all of that. Does this book at all refer to, and this shows up in, in Indigenous, but I'm thinking particularly in Australia with the Aboriginal thought of the dream time, and that's how this world was created by the ancestors during the dream time, what they call the dream time. Well, the author of this book is from Australia, and he actually talks about all the different traditions and influences. But yeah, it's very much in line with that cosmological understanding of everything and that you know the timeline that we sing or dream in the moment is just one line out of an infinite range of possibilities yeah yeah that's like richard bartlett's thing in matrix energetics as far as parallel universes but other people have discussed that as well that this is just one and you could go over like four parallel universes from now and it would be a completely different reality well, that's the miracle of the imaginal world, is that we can travel. And, you know, in, in our dreams, we do just that. We are entering another state of reality. And there are many teachers, many spiritual teachers, who talk about the dream world as being more real than this physical world. So, if you were, let's imagine, and I know this would blow some people's minds, but if we're actually living in the dream world right now, even our conversation. Do you think in order to get to the next world, whatever that may be, I know Joy Harjo refers to this in some of her poetry, you know, that we keep moving on to the next world. Is this going to be more of an individual or a collective process or both? Well, it's always both. It just depends on how we're focusing our attention. 
you know, it's a paradox. We are individual and we are part of a collective. We're yeah. individual and we're also a whole, part of the whole, and an integral and inextricable part of the whole. We just, by virtue of our ego consciousness, have the ability to think and observe and experience ourselves as a separate entity and identify with ourselves as a separate entity when in fact through direct experience we are just part of this greater whole that is much 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 more than just the physical world that we happen to be dancing in at this moment oh yeah i was just pondering this idea as you were talking of how everything is so connected and you know we keep as humans intruding upon the natural world and certain things are going to happen when you keep intruding upon the natural world. Remember the film Arrival with yeah. Amy Adams? Mm -hmm. and it was about those heptapods that had shown up around the world, and ultimately their purpose was to get the world to act cooperatively in a peaceful fashion because they said, we are going to need your help in about 3,000 years. We've come here now to give you our help so that you survive to be able to help us in the future. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? Yeah. That wholeness is not restricted by time. Yeah, that was part of that thing of the film, which was that time was circular rather than linear, and that the future and the past were also taking place simultaneously with the present. Mm -hmm. We can tell. So interesting. It. But I'd, so I wonder about this thing with the virus, because right now it's not a whole lot different, it seems to me, than, for instance, how different states in our own country have enacted very different rules within each state in terms of how to deal with this pandemic, that globally every country is doing a similar kind of thing, acting on its own in order to protect its own best interests. And at the same time, it doesn't really seem to be working out because we're spiking again all around, at least certainly in Europe and America. And it's like, well, at what point will governments really start to get into more of a cooperative thing as far as, well, how can we really do something as far as a general, whatever that may be, to work through this? If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Rick Halterman, author of Curriculum of the Soul. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Well, that's such an interesting thing on the political level because it takes political courage or it takes courage for people in positions of political power to act in the best interest, the best long-term interest, rather than the short-term interest of their own personal political well-being. Yeah. And that reminds me of another recent interview. I interviewed Gary Knight, who is the editor of this book titled Imagine, Reflections on Peace. And peace is often politically unpopular because it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of commitment to things that require a long-term vision. And politicians themselves never seem to benefit much from long-term policies and long-term benefits. They need short-term gain, short-term yeah. results in order to look good. So most politicians lack that kind of courage 
and willingness to risk their own political position and status and well-being for the benefit of the common good. Well, I guess that's reflective of the sort of attention spans that a lot of humanity seems to have. And it's the nature of the ego. Yeah, you know, that we're still going to be in the ego-centered world versus, you know, it was like interesting for me when I was getting into the Declaration of Independence and there was that idea of the pursuit of happiness, but peace never showed up. And happiness, well, that, of course, you know, can get quite vague. You know, happiness is like what? I can go out and, you know, like right now is hunting season out there in Colorado and Utah, and they're hunters, and some people are doing it for sports, some people are doing it for food. I don't know, but there's a certain amount of happiness in, you know, the killing of a particular species, and we don't have to get into a whole discussion about that, but happiness can really cover a lot of ground. You know, it could be somebody who's fracking and saying, well, this makes me happy because I can buy a new truck, you know, that kind of thing. And it's interesting that peace was omitted as even a possibility that happiness so so to what extent is your happiness dependent on or not somebody else's happiness well in our national declaration of independence and the creation of the constitution they were thinking in terms of safeguards to prevent the government from impinging upon the freedom or liberty of the individual to pursue their own version of happiness Yes. So again, and it's, that's it's lovely sort of... that you mentioned that, Tonio, because to me it seemed like the founders had some spiritual connection that they wanted to include in terms of whatever type of governance was going to take place would allow for us to go after our spiritual pursuits. Or whatever pursuits we were capable yeah. of. Yeah, it doesn't have to be of, spiritual. It wants to be psychological. It could be whichever. Right. But it allows for each individual to function from where they happen to be in their stage of maturity and evolution. And I think that's yeah. that's the nature of the universe is and that's the nature of love is love could be equated to acceptance and spaciousness and just allowing the space for everything to manifest and evolve as they naturally and organically do and that yeah. also includes the way our culture is unfolding and maturing or appears not to be maturing <laughs> depending <laughs> on how you how you happen to view it and this is all a natural and inextricable part of this universe that we are all a part of whether we like it or not and your teacher Robert Waterman does he talk about any of these issues not as directly as you and I, because he goes in a very different place, more individual in how that impacts the collective. So, for instance, in one of the last workshops, he was talking about people going to a place of love and mercy within themselves so that despair doesn't overwhelm oneself. So he wouldn't so much get into the political stuff. He's really almost exclusively on the spiritual terrain and trying to use that as the tool that's going to work for those people that are so inclined. Do any of you ever ask him politically related questions? Uh, Not so much. I mean, it's very clear where he stands politically. He started out one webinar before we really got going, and he was talking about something. He goes, oh, I can be just like our president and not take any responsibility whatsoever. (laughs) 
because <laughs> Robert can be very, very funny, and I love his sense of humor. We don't really get into politics, although when people would get into despair, for instance, about Trump, he would talk about the idea that if you're going to get into a whole position of againstness regarding Trump, regarding Republicans or Democrats, whoever, that you're really not working from a place that can really facilitate any possible change. I tend to extrapolate from that place that Donald Trump represents shadow elements that are probably inside of me. You know, just like spiritual teachers will talk about how we all have aspects of Hitler or Pol Pot inside each one of us. And we all need to deal with those shadow aspects. And that Trump is really more symbolic of this kind of shadow thing happening in America, that very lack of maturity that we're talking about. And he's just now become the representation to the extent that we have not matured as a country. Mm -hmm. oh, I totally, totally agree with that. So to love that and to understand it is a much more effective way of dealing with it than as soon as you get into the againstness, you're out of a sense of personal peace, but also you're actually reinforcing that other energy by getting into the againstness. Exactly. When you go to war against something, no matter how yeah. righteous we may feel about it, we are feeding it. Because it takes two to tango, and we can do that yes. tango ourselves in our self-created relationship with our own concept of the other. So, yeah, so in if fact, I, we can if go I, to war against ourselves. And that's, yeah. if, in effect, what we're doing. Uh-huh. And if I, for instance, can get to that place inside, and I work on this in my meditations and my thinking in general, which is, so, if Donald Trump is a representation of my own authoritarian tendencies, that kind of thing, how can I work with that aspect of myself and maybe bring it into a more mature place so that it doesn't really become more of a, you know, that I have to feel against, you know, every time he says something silly, you know, in a debate or something like that. Instead, it could be like, oh, Donald, thank you once again for reminding me of my own tendencies that I still need some work on. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. What a wonderful gift to have somebody model this aspect of myself that I myself probably wouldn't have the courage to stand up and do in front of other people. <laughs> yeah. And this is not to say, of course, Tonio, that, you know, I'm still concerned about, for instance, pulling environmental regulations, those sorts of things that really are going to have an impact not only on us personally, but on, you know, if there is three generations after us, I don't know. I am concerned about that kind of thing. So there's still a certain kind of activism going on inside of me of like, well, those are things that I need to activate as well. Mm -hmm. Those were the kind of political issues that I was referring to when I asked, how does Robert Waterman relate to he doesn't, he doesn't relate to those particular issues per se, and I imagine if we asked him that he would give a response in a second. But it seems to me that the people that he works with, and it's not a lot, because I think that there is sort of a limited scope in terms of what he presents and, and how he presents it, it tends to be more with the trauma of the individual. That's where he's really focusing, and that's where he seems to be most effective rather than getting in these larger pronouncements although I'm sure he'd be quite capable of explaining from his perspective how this stuff is all working out. Well, wouldn't you say that people's individual traumas are what engender all these political issues? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. There's this lovely group of women 
that are about our age up in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they've been working with my book and doing a chapter. I think it's about a chapter a month, so they're like two years into it, and they're now on the home stretch, and I just met up with them a couple of months ago on Zoom, and they were so wonderful. One in particular, who's kind of the leader of the group, or at least one of the leaders, and she was saying, you know, Rick, this all just comes down to beliefs, doesn't it? And, you know, that the very, say, the trauma, whatever trauma I may have gone through in my own childhood, I came up with certain beliefs due to that trauma in order just to survive. And this gets now back into Robert Waterman's work, along with his partner, Carrie Thorne, that there's a certain point we have to update those beliefs because they were quite functional as kids. You know, like when I grew up, for instance, in a family where we really were never touched by our parents, except for the rare time that my father would want to do physical disciplining, you know, spanking or something like that. So I grew up with the belief that in order to be loved, physical touch was simply not part of the package. And as soon as I got into relationships in my 20s in college, that I had to update that very quickly because it just wasn't going to work out unless I happened to run into a partner who was of the same background and thought that not touching was how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So it's this very interesting process that obviously I talk about in my book, but I know you've seen it in many other places too. How do we update all these beliefs? And it's not only the ones from our childhood, but I could come up with a false belief that's just being out there in the world and saying, well, obviously Arizona people don't like to wear face masks, you know, that kind of thing. And how do I continually, this is that critical thinking thing that Carla was talking about, how do I continually update this stuff so that I'm current with myself so I can be current with the world? Well, I would say that we are continually updating our beliefs. It's just that we may not be changing them. Yeah, yeah. Because every well, new experience... Well, that's where I think that critical thinking piece also gives us the discernment that, as you know, it's like when you refer to the media, there are a lot of beliefs that the media would like us to inherently adopt in order to you know, go further with the story, whatever's happening out there in the world. But that critical thinking is the thing that, like what Robert Bly mentioned in an interview when he said, whatever happened to the school of wait a minute? You know, that something comes along, a piece of information, and you go, wait a minute, does that make any sense? That kind of thing. So it's still back to these beliefs, and how do we keep working with them on a regular basis? And I think part of this problem that we're looking at in our country and the world, which is, you know, like this idea of how do we get back to normal? like prior to the pandemic, i.e. the belief that everything was normal at that time, if there was such a thing. And so it's like, how basically do I not have to change my beliefs is what that statement is telling me. How can I stay with my old beliefs and never have to challenge anything and just get back to the old normal, whatever that was? Right. Maintaining the status quo security, you know, the illusion of security. Yeah. And I think that's part of, you know, sort of like what you were talking about with these political agendas, which is basically how can we still keep clinging to these older beliefs? You know, like the conservative thing to me is still even a facade at this point, because the old conservatives actually had real values that they stood for. The new conservative is basically we'll adopt any position that's going to keep us in power. Or we'll take any action. Yeah. And that's a little frightening, you know, it's like when Republicans were starting to co-opt, for instance, the whole abortion issue in order to get Catholic votes. I was like, that's so fascinating. You guys have never believed in that whatsoever, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, you're now anti-abortion because you want some new votes. 
In fact, it was interesting. I heard a little thing because I'd been back for a couple of days. There was an interview with some prominent Catholic newspaper that was really speaking against Amy Comey Barrett. And they described her as a moral relativist and saying that she really didn't represent true Catholic values. She was just adopting, you know, whatever was going to be in current vogue. So getting back to our original theme, which was soul of democracy. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the soul of this nation? You know, where we are right now, or, or in general? In general, it's that I think that there is a false belief that our culture has, which is depending on who happens to be president at a particular time will determine our individual happiness, and I don't believe that. And even if Joe Biden, for instance, is put into the White House, it will slow down certain things as far as like environmental degradation, things like that. But the real soul has to do with the individuals of this country. And to what extent are we going to really believe in this concept? And this, it's really kind of a beautiful concept, this communal concept of democracy. And to what extent are we going to perhaps reinvent it as a culture so that it can function for everybody within this culture? You know, it was interesting when we were in the national parks, saw very few people of color. And, you know, it was just a noticing on my part. And I can't explain why that's the case, but it just is the case. It is dominated by white folk out there. And I think that's been the case for a long time. But it was just something I was like, well, why aren't there more people? I mean, I certainly saw, like, there are a lot of travelers, for instance. There are a lot of people coming from Asia that were there. There were people from India, I noticed. No Africans. Didn't really notice any South Americans. Didn't see any Canadian license plates at all. In fact, if anything, when we were out there, the dominant license plate in Utah was California, and that was followed by Washington. So there are a lot of white folk on the move, and I think these are states that are being ravaged by wildfires. So it was just noticing, like, so where is the diversity of this? You know, I think I'd have to go to an urban area to really see the true diversity of what's happening in America, not so much out there in the wild. But I'm wondering... To what extent is America really wanting to almost re-familiarize or maybe reinvent this idea of democracy so that it actually functions and is no longer the old paradigm power grab of what it has become? Does that make sense to you? Um, one thing that occurred to me while you were describing the demographic of the people where you were hiking is that being able to travel to places like that it's a kind of a privilege. A luxury, yeah. It's a luxury. It's an economic luxury. And not everybody in this quote-unquote democracy has equal access by virtue of their means and you know how their families through the generations have been disadvantaged by the system. Yeah. And I don't know that we're capable of having a meaningful democracy or meaningful republic as long as there's endemic inequality in this country. Yeah. Or there's anywhere. That. I, think, I think there's also, and I understand this too, it's like I remember when I was younger, for instance, there was an awkwardness to me of like going to, say, an African dance camp, and, you know, obviously all the teachers are from Africa, and there was a part of me of like, what am I really doing here? You know, I, I felt out of place. And I think in the same way that, you know, certain cultures understand 
Although I did see there were some black people, like it was in Bryce, and they were great. And they were funny, in fact, because we, we were we were near them during uh, one particular sunset. But that a lot of black people were like, I'm just not comfortable around all those white folk. I totally get that. I totally understand that. I think that there is economic means for some because it isn't all that expensive to go out camping, really, and the parks are very reasonable in terms of overall entertainment. It depends on where you're coming from. comfortableness of hanging out with what seems to be, it's like, all these white folk here. What the heck is going on? So, yeah, I agree with you. Whether there is going to be that maturation taking place, I think it's really up to, you know, us individually to do a certain amount of work. How many people actually want to do that work, are willing to do the work, or even aware that there is work to be done inside individually? That's a very big question. I think that's the... You know, that, when I look at, the, you know, the sort of popular, yeah. you know, the sort of, whether it's music, whether it's literature, things like that. There isn't a whole lot that pushes that idea. There's a lot that, of course, will point out the disparities that are happening within our culture. But there's not a whole lot that really want to talk about that full-on responsibility, like when you and I had that conversation about Ho'oponopono, the Hawaiian practice that is really asking for 100% responsibility within each and every one of us. That's, for, I think, a lot of people, too much to swallow. I think the issue is awareness of that. Of that possibility? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that even with the awareness, you know, it's like, for instance, my mother, my dear mother, 95, and she's still hanging in there, you know, just so wonderful. At the same time, she's so willing, and and I, I can be very forthright about it and say, you know, Mary Bryan, why do you continually want to give your power away to the doctors in your life, regardless of the side effects of all the meds that you are taking? But at some point, are you willing to take your power back and say, no, maybe I'll like try not taking this anti-anxiety for a while and see if that has any impact or not? It's so interesting because there is, I think, a programming in our culture. To what extent are we willing to give our power away so that we can blame it on government, we can blame it on our teachers, we can blame it on our friends, we can blame it on whoever is out there, we can blame it on the media. And to what extent are we really wanting to take that power back? Because that would be the most amazing place as a culture for all of us to do that. Yeah, to do it on every level. Because yeah. we all, in a knee-jerk way, find it very, very easy to blame something in our environment yeah, for something that's going on that we are not happy about. Yeah, like this would be a wild thing if our educational system simply focused on critical thinking, as we'd already mentioned, and how to eliminate shame and blame, that that would be monumental as far as changing this world. Yeah, I think perhaps the critical thinking would take care of the shame and blame. Yeah. Eventually. I mean, if you look at Byron Katie's work, she, I mean, she essentially just focuses on those kind of questions. You yeah, will pulling the projections back, absolutely. Yeah. You know, asking, is that true? It's like, it's very closely related to Robert Bly's, hey, wait a minute, is that really true? Uh-huh. Is what I'm thinking right now really true? Is what I'm reacting to really true? But then that fourth question, which is the key in her work, which is now turn it around. 
So, like, in my case, like in a, a relationship from 20 years ago, I was first encountering her work, and the whole question was, well, she abandoned me. You know, she got involved with somebody else, that kind of thing. And I could go through all the questions, and yes, she, yeah, is it really true? Well, yeah, you know, she got involved with a married guy. And I could rationalize the whole thing. And then when I got to the turnaround question, that blew my mind. It's like, oh, so I abandoned myself. And then I had to do all that work of how did I abandon myself and really start digging into that. That changed my whole life right there. Mm -hmm. And another one of the questions, which is I think is equally powerful, is who would I be or how would I feel if I didn't have this belief right now? Yeah. I'd feel great. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's true. It's so good. But, you know, we're getting into these, there's this whole realm of, you know, the subtle energy fields and those impacts. Like I remember it was, I think, a Sharon Salzberg thing. She's the Buddhist teacher that works out of Western Massachusetts. And she said she had this little practice every time she walks into say, a place where she struggles, like, say, Walmart or something like that, she would just walk in with a little silent mantra going on in her head, everybody here wants to be loved. And I've tried that a few times, and, you know, I can't say something happens every time, but there have been times where I've done that, walked into the Walmart here in Taos, and all of a sudden, there's an older Hispanic woman who's just completely chatting me up, and I've never met or seen this person ever before in my life, and I'm thinking, wow, man, this stuff really works. Yeah. And I realize our general culture really doesn't want to consider these subtle energy fields and what they're doing and how they're interacting with all the things around us. But from, say, the idea of a loving point of view versus, say, a fear-based point of view, you know, hate, anything like that, is totally going to change your world around you. Well, most people in our culture don't have the opportunity to learn that. And if they right. taught some of that in school, you know, if school was more broad-minded about these kind of things, because these are human dynamics. These are directly related to our human condition. And what could be more valuable to teach a young, fledgling human being? Well, I think part of it is that we're only barely beginning to understand some of these things. I know that, for instance, working with Robert Waterman, he and Carrie, they can actually see, you know, in someone's energy field where there's aberrations you know, where trauma it resides, things like that, and then can, of course, work with it. And we're only, and I think there have always been people alive on this planet that have been able to see into those areas, like shamans, people like that. But we're only barely beginning to understand. So when I think of, like, older religions, they would have, you know, whether it's the Ten Commandments or whatever rules, depending on the religion you are in, that ultimately represented what the subtle energy fields could be doing to yourself and to the people around you, but because they couldn't really explain it, they would just put it in terms of dogma, and that has its own drawbacks as well. Well, that's the attempt to legislate and moralize people to stay in line. Yes. It doesn't relate yes. to people's direct relationship with life itself. Yeah. And so it doesn't work. Yeah. And of course, this is very much a part of human nature. To what extent can we control? And, you know, I think it's part of nature in general. You know, a tree wants to control its environment enough to be able to thrive. At the same time, it knows it can't control the whole forest. But trees also know that they depend upon everything around them. Oh, yeah. So their survival is not an individual concern. It's a much more collective thing as opposed well, to the ego. Well, there's that cooperation piece. 
Yeah, you know, but it's, it's very really, natural. They, they know. It's like the root systems, I think of, for instance, of like aspen trees. They're actually the largest living organism, and we almost went there on this trip, but it didn't quite work out. There's a forest in Utah, which is called Fish Lake, and that forest, I think, has the largest aspen grove on the planet, which weighs, I can't remember, something like 8,000 tons worth of an organism. And they're all basically communicating with each other all the time which is so fascinating. We're barely just learning about that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of goes against everything that we understand about ourselves, which is basically limited to ego perspective, separation. Well, or the five senses. So back to your question, Tonio, let me ask the same question of you. If you were to have a hope regarding democracy or the soul of democracy or you know, or how, how do you see it evolving, how might that be? Um, well, we, we actually talked about it earlier. I think it's, it's just a natural, organic process, and it doesn't, yeah. it's, it's messy, it doesn't look like it's necessarily working all the time, yeah. if not much of the time. I mean, it reminds me of, of a line from a Bob Dylan song, which I love to quote, which is, winning the war after losing every battle. Yeah. You know, you can do everything yeah. wrong, and yet everything will, will somehow turn out okay. Not necessarily okay from our individual perspective or along the lines of what we want, but, you know, the universe, whatever that is, and of course, we can't even begin to conceive of it. I mean, we, of course... We're actually limited to what we can conceive of it. Um, the universe will be fine. Yeah, it's all an evolution. It's all so fascinating. And I don't know if I have much more to say on, on the particular topic. Yeah, I, do, I don't either. As per usual, it's been wonderful and utter pleasure for me to talk to such a kindred spirit. Yeah, it's always interesting to bounce off these ideas and... As always, it's been a pleasure. For me as well, and we'll keep in touch. We will indeed. Okay, <laughs> bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. It's coming through a hole in the air From those nights in Tiananmen Square it's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the wars against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. It's coming from the sorrow in the street, the holy places where the races meet. From the homicidal bitchin' that goes down in every kitchen to determine who will serve and who will eat. It's coming to America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery of change, and it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. 
democracy is coming to the USA. I'm sentimental, if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left or right. I'm just staying home tonight. Getting lost in that hopeless little screen. And I'm stubborn as those garbage bags that time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming to the USA. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.